Lord, we thank you that your presence is really with us and that we're not just making noise, Lord, but that you promise to be with us. Thank you, Lord, that we're not just hitting and hoping, but we know, Lord, that we're in you. As we gather in you, you are here among us. And we just commit this next time to you in your word. I pray it would be life-changing. I pray, Lord, for a church that is just fed and grounded and convinced of the things that are important. Please, God, I pray. I pray, Lord God, for this next half an hour or so for your anointing to be on it and to be on us, on me in giving, on the guys in receiving, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, 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 where are we? Between now and the end of November, we're going to be working through the book of 1 John. That's the plan. There'll be a couple of specials in that time where we have a couple of guest speakers and stuff, so it'll be a bit different, but during that time. Now, you probably know certain scriptures from 1 John if you've been a Christian a while. 1 John has in it those scriptures that you tend to pull out at key moments. Things like, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Any of you know that one? Big one. When you're faced against everything, man, I'm feeling nervous. You think, no, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Or things like, perfect love casts out fear. You know that one? It's in 1 John. Or, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Familiar? 1 John. It's in there. God is love. Yeah? 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John. So it's full of, full of bounty, full of treasures. But rather than just picking out our favourites, we're going to work through the thing. Okay, so you really get a feel for what the letter's about, why it was written, and we pick up on the, those that, bits which are perhaps less famous, but just as inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the plan. Who is John? Well, he's the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. And so he wasn't just in Jesus' crowd, he wasn't just in the 70, wasn't just in the 12, he was in the 3. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that there was this, almost, a, within the 12, there was the 3, Peter, James and John. They were the ones that were allowed to go and see Jesus transfigured on the mountain, just those three. Um, when he raised up Jairus' daughter, just those three. There was an inner circle. In fact, G John perhaps had the most intimate relationship with Jesus while he was on the earth. At the Last Supper, he rested his head on Jesus' chest. I mean, it was as they reclined for a meal. They wouldn't sit around a table in that culture. If you go to Middle Eastern cultures now, you find it's the same. What happens is, is that you tend to uh, lie along couches. You recline and you eat. That's how you eat. And so Jesus would have been lying, kind of like this, eating, and John's head would have been there. That's how it was. Very, very intimate. It's, that's the same man who wrote this letter. He knew Jesus as a man, man to man. Friends, very close, very intimate. He's also the same John who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. 2 John and 3 John are very, very short. 1 John is still short, five chapters, but it's more substantial. And he's the same John who wrote Revelation. So I don't know if you know that, but John is the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So that's who John is. We've got family here. If someone could just help them to find the kids' work, that'd be great. Oh, look at that. <laughs> someone stay to hear the sermon as well, it'd be great. <laughs> Esther and Natalie, who's going to be? Esther's one. She's picked it. This is all going to be on the download, I just realised. I've got to get used to the fact this is getting recorded. Sorry, guys. Something funny just happened. We'll carry on. In case you are not particularly familiar with the Bible, the Bible is not just one book. It's 66 books written by approximately 35 different authors. 
So in case you were thinking, I just thought the Bible was one book, we believe it is all together as the Word of God, but it's made up of 66 different books and 35 different authors. When was the book of 1 John written? Probably approximately in the AD 70s. Although because I've been dislocated this week, I've not had my usual references around me, so it's a bit of a guess. So if that's wrong and a theologian is listening, I'm sorry. What is the letter of 1 John about? Well, with the letters, with the epistles, you have to be aware that it's a little bit like listening to one end of a phone conversation. I've said that before, but if you weren't here, you may have never heard that. Have you ever been in the room where someone you live with picks up the phone and you're thinking, who are they speaking to? And you spend the next five minutes trying to work it out. You know, you've done that, yeah? And you think, no, it's not that person because of the tone of voice. My husband, wife, or whatever he's using, you think, oh, they're talking about that, so it can't be so-and-so, and you're narrowing it down, and you're narrowing it down. Well, the letters are like that. If you want to find out what they're about, you have, you have to really guess, and you, you, you look through the themes that come through, and the words that come through, and you realise, right, this is being said in response to this. You even find it explicitly in 1 Corinthians, Paul says somewhere, he says, about what you wrote, here's the, about, here's the answer. And so it's a conversation, obviously not by email, not by phone, it's through letters. But it's one, it's one part of a conversation, so that's how this works. But we're going to discover two ways today why this book was written. We're going to look at it in two ways. Number one, we're going to look at the words that are most used through the book. I counted them the other night. <laughs> what words are most used? What are the most used words in 1 John and the most common themes? And secondly, we're going to look at the introduction and the aim. Are you ready for this? Okay. Well, firstly, the, the, I'm going to give you the top three. We're going to get really excited and we're going to go in order three, then two, then number one. Okay, what, what, what words are most used in the book of 1 John? In third place, coming in with bronze medal, is the word sin. In second place, only just pipping the third place to the silver is the word no or knowledge. And in first place, streets ahead with 44 mentions is the word love. Well done, that lady. You get a kiss later. <laughs> that was my wife, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, so, so we've got number three is um, sin, number two, no, number, number one, love. I want to just quickly walk you through these because you can just think, well, what's the big deal? Number one, let's look at love first of all. There are two main Greek words for love. One is agape, the other is phileo, and they mean very different things. If I phileo you, here's what it means. It means when I meet you, I feel like there's a chemistry, we've got something in common, there are similarities. I feel like, yeah, I could get on with this person, and so I feel affection towards you. That's phileo love. Agape love is actually um, totally unconcerned with how this person looks, how they behave, whether they're like me or not, whether we have the same interests or not, but I am determined to do them good. Very different. The love we read about in 1 John is agape love. That's what God's love is. It's indiscriminate. It's not about whether you're like God or not. If you understand, that's a strange terminology, but you understand what I mean. It's not, it's not to do with your background. It's not to do with your personality or chemistry. God loves you. He's determined to do you good. That's what it means. And when we are told to love one another in the Bible, we are not being told to find someone that you really get on with and have warm feelings about them. What we're being told to do is to express goodwill and good intentions towards everyone. Okay? So that's agape love. That's what we are reading about here. Interestingly, agape is used nowhere else except for in the Bible. It's a comp- it, the word was created for Scripture and is used nowhere else except in Scripture. So it's a, it's a unique word. And that's the, that's the word that we're talking about here. We, we can see that um, from 1 John that agape love is the key to walking free from fear. 
If you are someone who finds yourself under the rule of fear, you find yourself governed by that, agape love is the key to freedom from that because perfect love casts out fear. Agape love is the key to keep you from, from stumbling. If you're following Jesus and you're concerned, you're feeling tempted, you're aware of external temptation or internal temptation or both, you think, what's the way through here? Agape love. Being aware in a very experiential way of God's love for you and then walking in love. What is the key to keep you from stumbling? Falling into sin. We are told in 1 John not just what we should agape, but what we shouldn't agape. Do not love. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. As well as, as well as what we should love. So that's some stuff on love there. So John, it's a big deal for John, it's a big deal for God, and um, we're going to find out about it through this series. Secondly, know. Now when John talks about knowing, we know this, you must know this, know this. He's not talking about intellectual, academic knowledge. Many of you would be pleased to hear. Sorry, some of you would be pleased to hear. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I think in our society, in a capitalist society which is built on money and built on success, we can, uh, we can so exalt academic uh, achievement and um, doing well, being successful, that we can think that's the be-all and end-all, especially in mid-August, when you read the newspapers of those who have, uh, cover stories of those who have found out the GCSE results or the A-level results, and you see it can, with some people, be the difference between elation and suicide. I mean, it's that extreme. Because we're in a society that pumps this whole thing of success, success, you must achieve, you must attain, you must do well, big pressure on that front. When John's telling us the things we should know, he is not referring to our IQ, he's not referring to our ability to um, understand, to hold facts. The word, Bible word for know is much more about what you experience in the depth of your being. I don't just know the verse. That's the danger with Western Christians. They know the verse. They know where it is. They've got their memory card. Okay? The verse says this. The danger, the danger with that kind of approach is that when the situation comes where that verse is particularly appropriate, you, there's been no work done in terms of getting it into the very core of your being and you, you don't live up to it. But you know it, you can quote it. It's much more important that we know the truth. See, when Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he's talking about an experiential knowing. It's part of you. It's part of who you are. It's become part of your DNA. John expects believers to have a clear conviction on divine matters. Clear conviction on spiritual things. Not to be just blown around by this, blown around by that, oh, okay, that seems like a good thing. Oh, well, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go to that church because it's kind of a nice atmosphere. I know they're teaching a few things that I don't know what they're on about, but it's a nice atmosphere. No, no, he expects us to be grounded. and No, no, this is what, this, this is what God's about, to be strong in the word. Especially when it comes to our standing before God. That's what a lot of his knowing is about. We should know this, we should know that. Some examples. John expects us to know God. You might say, well, of course, I mean, we're Christians. But I tell you, if you tell some people in the world you know God, they'll look at you like, uh-oh, where's the 999? You know, I mean, it's a lot of people in the asylums will tell you they know God. A lot of people that do crazy things with machetes and knives say, God told me to do it. Okay? And so you can back off from that and think, well, that's just that whole knowing God is a little bit, we can know about God, we can read. No, John expects you to know God if you're a believer. He expects you to know him. He expects you to be in relationship with him. To be hearing his voice. To be walking with him. It's much more than religion. John expects us to know why Jesus came to earth. To know why. Why did he come? He came to save me. I'm saved. He expects us to know the difference between truth and error. Not that you just accept anything that comes along. It sounds nice, the guy had a nice face when he said it. 
that we can discern what's going on, what's this about, where's this coming from? John expects us to know that we have eternal life. Can you really know that you've got eternal life? John says it. You know that you've got eternal life. It's big stuff. Very, very big stuff. John expects believers not to be spiritual dimwits. Doesn't expect you to just be kind of like, just, oh, I don't know, whatever. Doesn't expect that. He expects us to be grounded and convinced of certain things. And I'll just say here as a little, a little tip, this, it doesn't tend to happen by automatic download. To be, <laughs> to be grounded in God and in the truth doesn't happen by, it's not like the matrix where you just plug the thing in the neck and you just, oh, I know it all. That's not how it happens. It happens by putting yourself in the way of the spirit of revelation by actually putting effort in in terms of Bible study and seeking God. Okay, so there's a dynamic there that goes on. And then finally, sin, the one that came in on bronze. John is very comfortable speaking about sin. And um, what is sin? Well, the most common word for sin in the Greek is an archery term. It's not a religious term. It just means missing the mark. Okay? So you go on archery, there's your bullseye, you're going for it, bang. It veers off and it ends up in the grass or whatever. You've, you've sinned, you've missed the mark. And that's, what it's, that's, that's the imagery surrounding it. God's mark is this, and you've gone, whoosh, we've veered off through corruption and, and you know, wrong desires. So that's what the word means. John is very, very comfortable talking about it. And what we see from this is that spiritual reality and truth and revelation cannot be separated from moral issues like purity, righteousness and justice. Now why is that so important? Especially in our society. I'll tell you why. There is a huge waking up to spiritual things in the West. Massive. In the last 10 years it's been like an about turn. It was materialism, materialism, whereas it's shifted now to kind of healing and crystals and all that kind of yoga, all that stuff is the thing now. Spiritual things people are interested in and yet at the same time they are very nervous when people talk about absolute right and wrong. Morality. People don't like morality but do like spiritual things. Have you noticed that? Don't tell me the way I'm living is wrong. You live how you live, I live how I live. Yeah, that's the, very much people's approach in our society. Don't, don't you go there. I was reading Ken Livingstone in the paper the other day celebrating the thing about London is it is a city of tolerance. People are allowed to live exactly how they please as long as they don't get in the way of someone else living exactly as they please. That was his line. So don't tell me that I'm, what I'm doing is wrong. Don't, don't mention sin. Don't, that's very much people. But yes, I want spirituality. Yeah? John says, no. You can't have that without that. You can't have spirituality without morality. They are linked. You can't separate the two. Was John just a product of his generation? Well, we'll find that as we work through the book. So they're the three main things and the three main themes, and that's what we're going to be hitting. Does that sound good? The second way we're going to do it is by looking at the first four verses of 1 John and just seeing John's intro, because in John's intro, you can't get away from what or who the book is about. And also, John is explicit in his aim. This is why I'm writing to you. So why don't we read 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are right in these things, so that our joy 
may be complete. On that last sentence, there is some disagreement between scholars because you've got a number of different sources in terms of old writings, and some writings say we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some of the writings say we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Either way, John's after joy. Okay? It's the bottom line, but that's just so you, you're aware of that. You may have a little, a little number in your Bible, and it says that underneath, so just to, just to make that clear. So the object, the central object of the book and of the obsession of John's life is Jesus Christ. Don't you love him? <laughs> Jesus is the eternal life. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but the eternal life is much more a person than it is a thing. If you've got eternal life, you've got Jesus. It's much more than the fact that you're going to live forever on a cloud. People tend to think, I've got eternal life, I'm going to kind of live in this ethereal thing forever. If you've got eternal life, you've got Jesus. You're in him. You're wrapped up in a person. And so this eternal life that John is speaking about is Jesus Christ, obviously. That's who he's speaking about. Now how about the style? How about the style? Did you pick up the style? Let's read, I want to read it again. Please pick up the style because what can happen is when you read the Bible, you get into religious mode. Okay? So you just go, okay, where's it? Imagine you're just reading some other literature for just a minute. Please listen to the way it's written. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Is that poetic? Is it poetry? Is it beautiful? Is it mysterious? It's very mysterious. Who's he speaking about? It's, it's deliberately mysterious. It's deliberately poetic. It's very, very... Um, it's, how can I put it? It's intimate. It's very intimate. He's talking about that which we've handled. That which we see, it's very physical. Have you noticed that? Three of the five senses are used. Touch, sight, and hearing. It's very, very, it's, it's like a love thing. It's like a love poem. Don't miss that. Don't just start taking it apart. Okay, so this word means, no, no, catch the flavour. John is introducing you to his beloved. He's introducing you to the one that has gripped his life. This is who he is, Jesus. But he just reels you in. You think, who could he be talking about? Who could he be talking about? And actually, it's not until the end of verse 3 that we actually get the name Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that's going on here. It's very evocative. Very, very physical. Now, why is there an emphasis on the physical? Here's why. Because around this time, there was a heresy coming in, called, which we call Gnosticism. Here's how it works. The heresy coming in was this. Spiritual stuff is good. Physical stuff is bad and unspiritual. Okay? That's how it works. That was the heresy. Spiritual stuff like prayer, and those, they're great. But stuff like eating and sex, uh, no, 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 really down, down the list, into, you know, bad, corrupt. And so John is nailing that. Because when God created all of creation, which was spiritual, physical, what did God say about creation? It's good. Amen? God created food, God created sex. These things are supposed to be redeemed for God's glory, not kind of just shied away from. Okay, it's good. But this heresy was coming and saying, no, 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 if you're, you're spiritual if you fast all the time, and if you, if you don't get married, if you just kind of live in a cave, and that's, that's spiritual. John's like, right, we're going to nail this. Because what was coming in with this, they were saying, well, because of this, there's no way Jesus was really a man. That's what they were being taught. There's no way Jesus Christ was a man. He was, it, was like a, it was like a shell. It was like a shell, but really, no. I mean, even the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that Jesus was born a man, but the Christ spirit didn't come on him until his baptism and then left just before the crucifixion. So you can always spot a cult because they go funny on Jesus. Yeah, 
They go funny on Jesus. Because if you go funny on Jesus, everything else goes wrong. Yeah? You get Jesus right, everything else follows right. Because he's the one by whom all things are made and for whom all things are made. You get him wrong, you go funny. And the Mormons, well, they're just in a league of their own with a crazy Jesus. <laughs> but, um, but bless them, they're nice people. But uh, John's efforts are engaged to present people with the true Jesus. Fully man, fully God. Yeah? He's looking to nail this heresy because the heretics had creeped into the church and they began saying, oh, no, 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 this is the truth. And flowered it up and probably looked very ascetic and probably were very skinny but they hadn't eaten much and looked very impressive. And John said, I'm going to nail this. And now this Jesus is fully man. John is convinced that his readers will not experience fellowship and joy without a correct understanding of who Jesus is. Go wrong now, and everything else you experience spiritually out of that is, is counterfeit. Okay? If you've got a dodgy Jesus, any spiritual experiences you're having, in, having that come out of that are counterfeit. I don't care how much you fizz and pop. It's nonsense. You're being deceived. You've got to get Jesus. You've got to get him right. You can't just, you can't just create your own Jesus. I meet a lot of people who believe in Jesus, don't you? Yeah. The very few of them can look you in the eye and earnest and say, I believe in Jesus. Because it's very easy to create your own one, isn't it? And have you, have you noticed something? It's very interesting. The people that Jesus create, it's very, very insightful. The Jesus they believe in is just like them. Have you noticed that? His moral standards are the but it's also meaningful. So the Fellowship of the Ring, for example. They're together, but they're, they're going somewhere, Yeah? So they're on, they've got a purpose, but the idea is, is that you enjoy the journey with one another as you are doing it. All the parties are united in a cause and at the same time delighting in one another. Does it sound good? So you're, 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 you're in a cause, you're about the same thing, we're about the cause of Christ. Those of us here that are believers, we've, we've, we're, we're, on a, we're on a mission. We've, we're not just kind of killing time till heaven comes. We've been called to make disciples of all nations, to glorify Christ, to shine our light. That's what we're doing, but we do it together with one another, delighting in each other's company while we're doing it. It's nice, it's fellowship. So it's meaningful. It's not just, it's just hanging around and kill time. It's always, it's, we're going somewhere, but we're enjoying one another and enjoying God in the process. That's God's aim for the church. The early church were just like that, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, we read about them sharing their possessions and selling stuff so they can give to the poor and they're just, there's a unit, they're in and out of one another's homes. I mean, praise God, he's doing like with us. But never lose the fact that it started with the day of Pentecost. It wasn't just that they were really good guys, no. The Holy Spirit came, Amen. The Holy Spirit came on them and changed them from a bunch of scaredies into this out there um, community that loved one another, loved God, because what the Holy Spirit does is he reveals Jesus. That's what he does. Jesus said the Spirit will come and he will take what is mine and he will reveal it to you. He reveals the Lord to us. So the idea is, is that the Holy Spirit reveals the genuine Jesus to us as we get caught up with Jesus and caught up with one another. We fellowship together. We go somewhere. We get where we're going, but boy, do we have a party on the way. That's the idea. So we're always moving somewhere. We're not just wondering what are we about. We know what we're about. We know exactly why we're here. We're called to be a missionary to this area, but we're having a great time while we're doing it. It's like if you've got an orchestra. If the, if the orchestra is, all, if, so if the person here on the violin is looking to the kind of guy on the cello thinking, I'm trying to keep up with this, and then the person here on the big drum is looking to the guy on the violin, they're all going to get in a mess. But they all look together to the conductor. And there's a sense of the thing is going somewhere and it's beautiful. That's the idea. If we all get caught up with Jesus, honestly, I mean, this isn't just pipe dreams, if we get caught up with the Lord together, we will, we will make a beautiful sound. Yeah? It will, be a, it will be a song. And I pray that this church is a song. So that's fellowship. And the second thing is joy. 
What is joy, and how does joy differ from what you feel like after you've had a great holiday, for example? Or how does it differ from what you feel like after you just do a can of Red Bull in one swig? What's the difference between that and joy? <laughs> is it like that? Is that what joy is like? When we drove to Cornwall, um, we went from Derby to Cornwall. We just, let's do it in the night. There's nothing worse than driving through the day in the sun with kids in the car. Please, take my word for it. If you ever have kids, don't go on long journeys in the car. You get out of the first road and they say, are we there yet? You think we've got eight hours to go. It's bad. Okay? So we said, let's do it in the night. So with a wonderful mix of the Holy Spirit and caffeine, it was a beautiful moment. We made it at 4 a.m. and we just caned it down there. But you see, there was just this sense of, I'm not talking about joy, I'm talking about what joy isn't. It was just caffeine. I was just buzzing. It's got the biggest latte in the world. It was like, yeah, it was great. But the thing is, how does that differ? It was a nice experience, but is that joy? Is that what John's talking about? Or how does it differ from winning the lottery? How is joy different from just your numbers come up? And elation, what is the difference? Let's look at this. Joy is the overflow of a mind that is steadfastly fixed on the unchanging beauty of Jesus, on his unswerving love, on his goodwill and on his favour. Okay, so it's the overflow of a mind that is fixed on Jesus. It's not just some little buzz, oh, it comes and goes, oh, that was great, oh, it's worn off now. But, you know, it's, it's a, there's a steadfastness about it. Joy you could describe as a symptom that follows heavy duty, continuous, addictive gospel fixes. Okay? So you're just so caught up with Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you, that the symptom that flows is joy. You're just, man, this is amazing. Joy is free. That's how it differs from the lottery, from the Red Bull, and from good holidays. It's free. It's not delusional. It's not destructive. It's not self-centred, as so many other buzzes are. But joy actually, listen, this is so beautiful, joy enhances every other healthy relationship you're in. Okay? Every healthy relationship that is part of your life, joy will enhance that. Red Bull 1. It's supernatural. Listen to this in Acts. I mean, this is just a picture, really, of um, joy in action, if you like. Acts 5, verse 40. You don't have to turn there. The officials called in the apostles and when they had beaten them, <laughs> beaten them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing eh, that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. Now, that, hold on. Right, catch that. They've just been rebuked and beaten and let go and for, forbade to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They go in their way rejoicing they have been counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. That's joy. It's supernatural. It's, please, we've got to get this. We're supposed to live in this. We are supposed to live in it. We are not supposed to be living under the effects of our circumstances. It's not that we will never feel stressed, never struggle with things. Of course we will. But there is we, our right, if you like, in Christ is to be experiencing joy even while we are walking through that. The idea is not that we are just exactly the same as the world, just as moany and just as stressed. That does not glorify God. It doesn't. And I'm, I'm not just, uh, you know, I'll, I'm preaching this to myself. You know, I'm aware of it but with, the, with the thing with the house move and that. It's been an interesting journey. Yeah. <laughs> Father like son. It's, it's, been an, it's been an interesting journey. You know, there have been times where you think, I just smacked one of my kids. Was that really because they deserved it? Or was that because things are getting on top of me? Do you know what I mean? You think, ah, God, 
you know, in the, in the middle of stress and uncertainty, the idea is, is that we are reigning in life. The Holy Spirit is available for that. He will not be absent when you need him, but we have a responsibility to draw near. Yeah? And fix our eyes on Jesus. That means you draw him to the centre of the storm and you pray out and you tell your own soul what he is like and you fix yourself on him with vigour. It's not automatic. There's an action, a dynamic action of I put Christ at the centre of my mind through this. It's a, glorif- it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It works. <laughs> it works. It's amazing. But... Um, you, I, know, I don't know about you, but obviously we're coming through the end of this particular season. I always wish you could, you, you could do better, and, and there are moments like that. But I feel generally I've learned a lot through it, and I thank God for that. So that is joy. What is joy? To sum it up, joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. You like that? Yeah. It's nice, isn't it? Okay, that's how you remember it. Joy is peace dancing, all right? It's peace that's got really excited. So let's just conclude. The fellowship and the joy, they are not starting points. They are not places of source. The source is Jesus, Yes? true knowledge of him. Fellowship and joy are rivers that flow from the source, from Jesus, the God-man. John in his gospel focuses on Jesus' divinity, that he is God. In his letter, he focuses on Jesus' humanity. He had to be a man. If Jesus wasn't a man, the gospel doesn't work. Why? In a nutshell, here's why. In Genesis, God ordained a man, Adam, to populate the world with people that knew his glory and that loved him. That was his commission. God's purposes are never thwarted. And so even though Adam failed through sin, God ordained that through the second Adam, another man, his purposes would come to pass. Yes? So it had to be a man that redeemed men and women. So if, if Jesus was some kind of phantom or spirit in a shell, does not work. He was fully man because God's purposes are never thwarted. Adam's sin does not take away from the fact that God will have his way. Amen? He's sovereign. He is sovereign. And although our part to play is real and we can mess things up and we can hinder things, absolutely, God's purposes will come to pass. Do you believe that? It's very, very important that you do. Jesus is fully man. He is the second Adam, the last man, the obedient one. And this series, all it's going to do really is take us further and further into Jesus. You up for that? All right, okay, let's pray and then we'll gather back. The band want to come up. Jesus, we thank you that you are fully man and fully God. We can't understand or fathom that, but we love to worship you. We love to worship you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, that understanding the real you is not rocket science, but it's based on revelation. And that you have revealed yourself to us by your spirit, Lord. And we know that we know you. Hallelujah. Thank you. We know we have eternal life. We know we're forgiven. We know where we're going. What a glory. It sounds arrogant to those who don't understand, Lord, but we know. The Spirit's in us. We know. And I want to say thank you. It's all your mercy. It's all down to you. And I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, that doesn't know you yet, Lord God, that's just unsure. I pray bring revelation, God. Bring revelation. Just pray, Lord. Just bring it, Lord. Not in some kind of... Not some weird mystical thing, but just open the eyes of their hearts, Lord God. Let revelation come, I pray. Lord, this is the community of your people, that your family might grow and increase and fill the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.